You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Today's SpyCast is brought to you by our friends at Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart designs, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Thank you for your continued support of SpyCast. We're joined today by Thomas Ridd, who's a professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. He holds a PhD from Humboldt University in Berlin, and it was in Germany that he wrote his first book, War and Media Operations, while at the Stiftung Weissenschaft in Politik, a Berlin think tank. From 2006 to 2009, he worked at the School for Advanced International Studies, Johns Hopkins University here in DC, the Rand Corporation also in Washington, and at the Institut Francois des Relations Internationales in Paris. That's not even close to how you pronounce it, but we're going to go with it. In 2009-2010, Ridd was a visiting scholar at Hebrew University and at Shalem University in Jerusalem. His book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, which was published in 2013, analyzed political computer network intrusions. His most recent book is Rise of the Machines, which just came out. It tells a sweeping story of how cybernetics, a late 1940s theory of machines, came to incite anarchy and war half a century later. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's great to be here. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Well, it's good to hear. Tell everyone you know. Uh, th- there are a lot of books out there on cyber. We've actually had some, some recent authors who have written about this, and, and it seems to be a flourishing market now. But this one is unique in that it takes a real long look at the history of the field and how it developed over time. What made you decide to take on such an extensive topic? Because you go back into the 1940s when looking at something that is obviously more of a modern phenomenon. Yeah. Um, it started with, uh, you know, the, the term cyber in, a, in the more technical community is a very controversial uh, f- word. A lot of people cringe and, and roll their eyes at it. And um, because they often trace it back to a science fiction novel from the mid-19 or early 1980s, William Gibson's Neuromancer and his short story, Burning Chrome. And... Um, and I was always a bit annoyed because I, I get introduced as our cyber security or, or just cyber expert quite often. So I thought I probably can't, you know, kill it, cyber, as a term. So let, I might as well just uh, add some historical depth to it. And then I, I started digging into the actual history 
because cybernetics was shortened to cyber already in the early 50s um, in science fiction and, and in, in, you know, by defense contractors very early. Um, and, um, and the story turned out to be absolutely fascinating. Was the, the word cyber today means so many different things to so many different people. I mean, just kind of finding a definition today is incredibly difficult. I mean, you're tracking it all the way back now it's almost seven decades or more than seven decades um when the really machines were certainly computers didn't exist yet and machines were at a very basic level and you look at the 1940s and you begin there when you talk about people with visionary you know uh, outlooks on the world and you have people like uh, with great name norbert wiener who started to imagine machines in almost a lifelike way you know, way before anybody else is thinking about this. So you can talk about Wiener a little bit because he writes a pretty fundamental book yeah. to the understanding of cyber later on. Yeah. So I start the book, and I think it's important to, to do that with, um, with, with a description of the blitz in, of the air, raid, air raids against London, German raids on London, um, because that is the initial puzzle, the initial challenge for, the, for cybernetics. It isn't called cybernetics then in 1940. Uh, 41, 42, but Wiener starts working on the on this challenge that how do you how do you aim an anti-aircraft gun at an at, a, at an aircraft that is coming in fast and high, so too fast and too high to see with your eyes and to and to just you know shoot at if you like by hand. So obviously there need to be complex ballistic calculations in order to aim the artillery shell uh, in front of the plane um, so that you hit it. By the, by the time, the, by the time they sort of coincide in right. the air, it's like shooting ducks in the wing. Right. If you shoot at a moving target, you're not going to hit it. You got to shoot in front of it. You got to lead it. Yeah. Absolutely. And Wiener was looking at a small puzzle of that challenge, namely, how do you predict the flight path of the aircraft after you shot the um, uh, the, the shell? So that could be up to 20 seconds, and pilots would try to take evasive right. action. So. Um, the challenge was to, for him, was then to understand the system of pilot and plane as one entity. And that is the first theme of his cybernetic book later on, that machines and living beings, humans and machines, basically merge. Uh, and the second theme that he, uh, the word feedback that we use today all the time is, is one of his expressions. So feedback was the way a machine would um, react to changes in its environment, like you know, your heating system at home and the thermostat creating an equilibrium of temperature in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a, in a house. Uh, so if you combine those two, it just excited uh, the people in the 19, late 1940s published this book, Cybernetics, in 1948. It was like AI today, like artificial intelligence today. Well, I think the subtitle of that book is really interesting. It's, it's Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. Yeah, trying to really tying those two things together. Yeah, he um, that, the the theme of cybernetics, well, the, uh, cybernetics was extremely ambitious as a, as a scientific discipline. They didn't just want to explain the machines that already existed, but also all machines in the future. It was a very right. abstract uh, theory, and not just machines, but also, um, you know, machines ha is a very wide term at the time it didn't didn't just mean gadgets or mechanical devices but included organisms and indeed it included even more complex systems like entire political systems or societies 
So it was a very greedy, almost, you know, if you like, it was an obese theory. It just blew itself out of proportion and then at, at some point uh, just couldn't, couldn't uh, hold it all together anymore. There's also a time where people started thinking that eventually machines or computers would be smarter than men. It would kind of a indication of what would later be called the singularity or, yeah. you know, the Terminator syndrome or, or whatever else. And that, again, is very visionary. I mean, that, that's not something we still haven't experienced yet, but it's something that you don't imagine comes from the 1940s. You think it's much, much later if it's, yeah. if it's uh, anything from the 80s or, or even beyond. Yeah, Wiener himself actually uh, made uh, what I think was an early mistake, a mistake that a lot of people to this day make uh, again and again, and that is he conceptualized, he was thinking the machine from the human Basically, what I mean by that is he, he looked at the machine, at new machines and possible machines and you know small robots that he was designing in his lab at MIT, and he thought, if we do this right, we can create a machine that is like us, that as intelligent as, as, as we are as humans, um, as adaptive, and ultimately, if we do it really well, we can create a machine that's even more intelligent than we are. And that's where the, where the singularity mm -hmm. uh, comes in, the idea that... Uh, machines could become more intelligent than we are. I mean, a lot of people look at the Second World War as a, a technological war. You have atomic weapons, you have radar for the first time, but maybe people don't consider the fact this is really the time where you have the first confrontation between autonomous weapon systems, between yes. essentially fully robotic. I mean, you say in the, you could, the first battle of the robots, as you say in the book. Can you talk a little about this is the V weapons on the German side and then our response to that? Yeah, so, so this is, you know, just to, just to be historically accurate, this is just a few years before Wiener writes the book, but it really captures the spirit, mm -hmm. the zeitgeist, in the, uh, at the end of the war. So the, v, uh, the V-1 the, um, is essentially a cruise missile that the, uh, um, the German army developed at the end of the war, or they started a little earlier, but it was only fielded towards the end of the war against London and other targets in Europe. Um, was conceived at the time, I mean, it was not an autonomous weapon system. It was just an un, uh, a pilotless aircraft, if you like. It didn't have any autonomous systems on board. Um, but uh, it measured against what they had at the time, it was a huge leap, a right. huge progress. So you had the V1, and it was on the other end, on the other side, on the air defense side in the UK, uh, British uh, anti-aircraft um, British air defenses used also a system that had a higher level of autonomy than anything that we had seen before, and that is the uh, the, the, the variable uh, the, um, the, the VT uh, fuse. Right. So a fuse that enabled um, the shell, an artillery shell, to sense uh, proximity. Right, proximity fuses. Yeah. 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 Um, so, but but this is significant because people thought. We were really excited about this shell that could essentially make its own decision once it sensed that an aircraft was close by, detonate and bring it down. And when the VT uh, fuse and the uh, uh, and the V1 uh, missile, or cruise missile, if you like, essentially encountered each other over the channel, the head of the British air defenses at the time, I think Frederick Pyle, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, uh, General Pyle, uh, spoke of the war. Uh, between the robots, the war of the robots over the channel. Let me skip ahead to the 1960s, because I think by the 1960s, with the vast improvement of computers, a real new, and many would say frightening, possibility arose. And that's automated decisions 
to start and wage war. Now, when you mix these things with nuclear weapons, you can see that there could be real issues. And the Air Force, especially the United States, started looking at automated air defense systems and make decisions on its own. And part of this stems from uh, the DO line, the Defense Early Warning line of communications, which really kind of comes across as almost an early online network where, where the, the communications that are not being done by voice communications that are being done essentially by data. Um, can you talk a little bit about this, this change in the 1960s because of modern computing for the time? Yeah. Um, so the, one of the major innovations, as, 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 you, as you're hinting at, it, at the time was the, um, what's, what's known in the U.S. Air Force as the semi-automated air defense uh, excuse me, semi-automated ground environment, SAGE anti-aircraft network, um, which uh, was essentially a, a countrywide, a continent, continent-wide network of computers that the Air Force controlled. And they used, uh, did, made a revolutionary, really revolutionary decision at the time, and that was to use AT&T um, telephone lines to connect uh, military uh, defense networks, which was extremely controversial because you don't want to give, uh, you know, a civilian uh, company control of your communications infrastructure. But they did it and f- made a number of innovations in that context that really enabled things that we take for granted today. So, for instance, the modem was first developed in that context. A major investments in, uh, com- in IBM uh, computers uh, resulted in, in, in commercialization of, of, of uh, you know, computers in the, in the 60s later. So uh, the risk that the Cold War presented, that nuclear, nuclear war presented in, in the 1950s, resulted in, in taking investment risks that I think the private sector wasn't ready to make, but the government at the time was. Well, in a lot of ways, the government influence and the government resources helps to build the telecommunications industry in the United States and later, you know, really what turns into the computer industry. Yeah. I mean, what I'm not covering in the book, but just for context here, is what's happening inside the intelligence community, especially the NSA, where you have equally massive investments in computing for, uh, for crypto analytic purposes. So take the two together, the Air Force and the NSA investment in the uh, electronics industry in the 1950s just really enabled the space age, ultimately. There's an interesting uh, kind of a juxtaposition or or a back and forth in the 1960s also. It's like the late 1940s as so many changes are taking place. We talked about Wiener making predictions about the future. And you see somebody that I know well, Herman Kahn, uh, my, my background in nuclear intelligence. He's very famous for writing a 1960 book called On Thermal Nuclear War, which is about as terrifying as it gets. Uh, but he also wrote uh, something in 1967 called The Year 2000, which I'm sure is, is humorous to read, kind of predicting that far ahead. But he got some stuff right. Predicted pocket phones, home computers, computers for research and for crime fighting. Um, he did miss the mark on artificial men, but maybe he's too early. Right, 2000 is the wrong time because he's really kind of predicting, again, artificial intelligence in many ways. He is. I mean, he... Uh, um but, but I chose to to tell the story of some of the ideas that he got completely wrong because I think it makes an important point here. We have, all of us, uh, including historians, we have a very selective memory when it comes to technological predictions. It's just more appealing to tell the story of something that actually then came true. 
because why you know why should we be interested in in predictions that, t- that turned out to be completely wrong yeah, but it's important because most predictions turn out to be wrong only a very small mm-hmm. minority uh, you know gets it right and i often get the question when i talk about the book what do you think the next 10 15 years look like and i always think to myself why should i you know if even norbert wiener and herman kahn and and you know Ross Ashby, many brilliant minds get it completely wrong. Why should why should I get it right? So, what do you think the next ten fifteen years are going to look? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, one thing I thought was was incredibly interesting is is I I was in the army in the 1990s and we used a lot of uh, a lot of simulations to to practice war fighting, whether it was in tanks or other ways, uh, and it seemed pretty whiz bang for the 1990s. I mean, this is something almost virtual reality-like. But these are systems that are actually began, the idea at least for them began to gestate with the Air Force all the way back in the 1970s. Um, Coming out of Vietnam, trying to come up with new weapon systems like the F-15 and the F-16, and trying to decide like what technology went into them. These seemed like lofty goals, especially 1970s computing technology. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the themes that is coming... Uh, to my surprise, that's, that's emerging from this from this cybernetic story is that the Air Force in particular plays such an important role in this development. So you just mentioned the F-15, F-16 uh, technologies. Um, it was literally because of the cockpit design of the F-15 that we um, that the Air Force started developing what we now call, you know, cyberspace. It's a very 1990s word, but virtual. Uh, reality technology because the, the Air Force realized in, in the late 70s already I mean that's very early, that's mm-hmm. before William Gibson even you know thought about cyberspace the Air Force in a project that was inspired by cybernetics dis- said we don't have enough real estate in the cockpit for all these switches and it pulls the pilot into the cockpit as they say sort of out of the actual environment they're operating in so they said, okay, let's bring the cockpit and put it into the face of the pilot and enable the pilot to see a virtual reality directly through the helmet. Not, not a, not a, um, not a uh, heads-up display inside the cockpit, but the actual mm-hmm. helmet-mounted display. And when they did that, um, they discovered that the human vision, the human psychology reacted to having a virtual environment sort of projected directly into the face. And they, they noticed that the pilot would be drawn into a virtual reality that they showed the pilots, and it, it, it was difficult to get them out again. Right. So it was, it's a fascinating sort of pioneering work in the early 80s there. Yeah, no, in the book you actually talk about the, you know, where uh, that was finally made declassified or finally made public, and there's a great video of uh, interviews with some of these pilots, and there's a pretty clear and obvious reference that they make that might make sense for a lot of people are out there listening? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you know, even before uh, science fiction coins the phrase virtual space, the Air Force makes their p- uh, project uh, public, and they t- talk about this as a helmet-mounted display and, and voice interaction with the aircraft. And they you know, show video to CBS and the two new segments that air in 1983, and it's, it's just an amazing, uh, really, piece of history and almost pop culture history because you have an Air Force... Uh, F-16 pilots talking about this automated sort of man-machine interaction in the cockpit 
while in the background, and this is just a couple of months after the first uh, Star Wars mm -hmm. film comes out, while in the background you have Luke Skywalker, R2-D2, uh, you know, in their fighter in the final scene, uh, aiming against the uh, the Death Star um, with the help of a of a helmet-mounted right. display, if you recall. Absolutely, and, and they really had even loftier goals. Are they talking about thought programmed and thought guided weapons? You know, which is also out of science fiction. You know, things like Firefox and the eight, where you think it the minute you think there's a bad guy, your weapons fire off. Again, we're talking 1970s here. This is not like modern day. You know where the F thirty five helmet does a lot of this stuff, but that's in two thousand sixteen. Yeah, I mean this helmet design story is, I find absolutely extraordinary, I mean, for for a number of reasons. One is <laughs> that the, the designers of this very first uh, powerful helmet uh, mounted um, they actually called it the Darth Vader helmet inside the Air Force because it looked a bit clunky like the Darth Vader helmet, and then they had a. a, a a contest, sort of a design contest for the best helmet design. And they asked the Lucasfilm helmet designers to submit uh, a proposal, apparently. And the actual Lucasfilm helmet design proposal made it and won the competition because for, you know, out of pure luck, the aerodynamic properties of the Lucasfilm helmet were superior and <laughs> prevented heads snapped off if you exit at uh, high speeds. So science fiction costume designers did a better job than probably aerospace engineers in developing a helmet, which is a fascinating story. If you've been listening to SpyCast over the last couple weeks, you've heard me talk about Mack Weldon, maybe even more than you hope to. The truth is, and, and the reason I'm continuing to talk about them, no matter what store-bought brands you've been using in the past, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now and will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, shorts, polos, and sweatpants that you will ever own. As I've also mentioned before, the really cool thing about this company is that they're constantly growing. If you went online to check out Mack Weldon after hearing my first read a couple months ago and then never looked again, you'll be amazed at how much more they now have to offer. Like their Vesper Polo, a perfect product for SpyCast fans. The Vesper Polo has a design inspired by James Bond, and has advanced fabrics and a collar that will always keep its shape. This polo is unlike any other. The Vesper polo is even named after the company's favorite Bond girl from Casino Royale, Vesper Lind. And as things are finally beginning to cool off a bit, there's nothing better than the Mack Weldon Ace Hoodie and Pant. Made for life beyond the 9 to 5, the Ace Hoodie and Pant was designed with a refined fit, super soft French terry, and details that go the extra mile. They were made to be worn everywhere. And then there are everyday socks that treat your feet right. Sharply designed and tech-enhanced, these stay put as you keep moving. A cushioned footbed makes for an undeniably comfortable wear, no matter how much pavement you're pounding. And for the fans of the discreet, which as SpyCast fans we should be, they're the no-show socks, which stay out of sight and slip free with smart design and built-in gel strip technology. A seamless toe and extra cushioned footbed keep things comfortable, ideal for sneakers and dress shoes. And, of course, Mack Weldon will always have the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. Let me jump ahead to the 90s. Uh, this is my, my world, uh, my coming of age. The 1990s is really the early heyday of the hacking world. It kind of falls together with the tech boom, 
uh, the tech bubble as it was, uh, where personal computers are becoming ubiquitous across the United States, where the early internet, everything from Yahoo and Google are kind of getting on their feet. Uh, this is also a time when law enforcement is beginning to kind of get their act together and fighting against hacking. Uh, okay, talk, what was the environment here? Because it really kind of seems like you have this back and forth world where most people don't understand it very well, but there are people who are far ahead of everybody else. And there, let me give you context. Most everybody today can handle a computer pretty well. My mom still can't turn one on, but most everybody else can find their way about it around a computer, even doing some basic programming. This is not a time where that's the case. This is a time when people weren't necessarily doing a whole lot on computers. This is kind of the beginning of this new world we're talking about today. Yeah. Uh, the, the early 80s in many ways, and then from, from there quickly we're moving into the 90s, the early 80s are a key uh, moment because I'll just point out two technologies that are fundamental, really revolutionary, and I'm not using this word lightly. One is the personal computer that for the first time enables a lot of people to have access to computers and um, not just large corporations. And, and um, you know, a tremendous uh, technology of empowerment. Suddenly, the personal computer accomplishes something that is really impossible to, to underestimate. Some of you may recall, and I'm sure many of our listeners will recall, um, the 1984 ad, the Apple, famous mm -hmm. Apple ad, um, a play on George Orwell. Right. Um, with a hammer that this uh, lady then throws into the screen at the end. And that ad, I think, symbolizes, just perfectly symbolizes that the computer turns from a tool of oppression, and of course Big Brother in that ad is IBM, uh, not the government, from a tool of oppression to a tool of liberation. So technology becomes something that is suddenly hip and cool and, and that is you can use to express yourself as an individual, not, you know, just from a for, for military and, and government uh, purposes. Second technology, at the same time emerging slightly slower but equally important, is encryption, public key encryption. And then you mentioned the 1990s, the two converge, mm -hmm. and you have you know cyberspace in the 1990s, uh, ambition emerging, and the idea that cyberspace can be cordoned off from the feds, from the governments, by uh, erecting a wall of encryption. And then in cyberspace, you can create you know, the new frontier, the new West. Uh, you can create a world that is better than what we have. Well, public key, key encryption, which a lot of people may not think a lot about or know anything about, is really a game changer at this time. It, it, it essentially takes what was something that was government controlled almost across the board and you know, gives it to everybody. This is not something that you need advanced technology to use. No, absolutely. So public key encryption um, is, is, is truly a, a, one of the, I think, one of the most significant technological inventions of the past 500 years because it drastically changes. And it took a couple of decades, of course, to, to gestate, but it drastically changes how encryption can be used and broken ultimately or not broken anymore. So the intelligence uh, ultimately means for signals intelligence – I mean, that's also going beyond the book. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it means that we're moving from the midpoint, from bulk collecting you know, radio signals beginning in, in the 40s already, to, um, to, to penetrating the endpoint instead. And that trend, I think, was, tr was accelerated by uh, and enabled, really, by public key encryption. Well, and this is a time when the, the national security agency is beginning to freak out a little bit. Yeah. They no longer have the magic key to everybody's information. 
Uh, they even looked to rein in public key encryption by trying to get laws passed and other things like that. And this is the same time Enemy of the State's coming out when people are starting to learn about the NSA is the exact moment when in reality they're trying to kind of crack down on the spreading of this technology. Yeah, so the very first public or semi-public talk that uh, an NSA director gives ever is because of public key encryption. Bobby Inman gives a speech uh, trying to, uh, you know, obviously they're hugely concerned about this technology. By the way, I mean, they're concerned for a reason that is widely underestimated. They already knew about public key encryption. They had discovered it at GCHQ around 10 to 5 years earlier. Timeline is a bit fuzzy. But um, it wasn't that... So from their perspective, it was like some hippie academics in California suddenly stealing their secret. Mm -hmm. It was not making an independent invention, but it felt like they they stole their secret. Yeah, it was something only they could use, and now everybody can get their hands on it. It makes it incredibly difficult, which really leads me into the next conversation I want to have is that because we are, we the United States, are the most networked country in the world by the mid-1990s, moving into the early 2000s, this is a significant strength for foreign policy, for national security. But it also opens up tremendous vulnerabilities that we still have to deal with today. Um, new technologies that double-edged sword where, yes, we have instantaneous communication and we can do a lot when it comes to fighting wars, but at the same time, we have an Achilles heel. Yeah. So I cover that Achilles heel, which, you know, was called in the early 1990s, the electronic Pearl Harbor vision came up. The notion of cyber war emerged then very quickly, already earlier in the 80s. And um, people expected cyber war to be, you know, planes falling out of the sky and chemical plants blowing up, the physical, the kinetic Mm -hmm. uh, consequence of computer network intrusions. But... What actually happened then in 1996, and I'm telling the story in a lot of detail, it cost me a, an amazing amount of time to re- research this story of Moonlight Maze, mm-hmm. the first big breach. What, what actually happened was an intelligence operation. It was a, 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 a spy campaign, in this case by uh, the first big one was a Russian operation against American government and military targets. And the Russians were very uh, innovative and um, breached uh, many targets, stole information that an internal report at the time said was three times as high as the pile of paper, if you pile it up, three times as high as the Washington Monument. Hmm. So, you know, immensely effective as an operation. Yeah, and they got into DOD, DOE. I mean, these are multiple agencies that they were still, even NOAA, you know, and the EPA and, you know, major labs like Los Alamos and Sandia. One thing that I found about this book, this is a fascinating new history. A moonlight maze. This is stuff that's not out there before. Uh, you talk, and I, I, I try to read what I can. You talk in your acknowledgments about anonymous sources, about people that you've talked to about this. I'm not going to ask you to reveal those, but can you talk a little bit about how you source this? Because this is a new story. Yeah. Um, so what I did is um, I talked to a lot of people that I couldn't name, not just one or two, um, for obvious reasons. Many of them are out now, out of the FBI or out of the uh, intelligence community. There was a major... Moonlight Maze was an international operation. It's not just, they didn't just target the United States. So there are actually people who can talk about this with authority in other Five Eyes countries, um, not just the UK. Um, And so the US, UK, and other countries as well. Um, So, but really, 
I learned a few fascinating lessons there, how to cover the history of cyber, int- of cyber attacks, if you like, of, of digital espionage. So freedom of information requests, um, and I filed a number of those. Some were denied, but I also got a, a couple of really interesting documents out of the FBI especially. Freedom of information requests were useful, but um, basically what I had is interviews almost 20 years after the fact, and um, freedom of information requests. And many of the interviewees couldn't rem- remember the dates right. and some of the structural context, but they could remember some granular detail and anecdotes and whatnot. So they really mutually filled in the gaps. I could use the f- uh, FOIA f- documents to, to date what they, what they basically told me um, and to verify. Um, right. So re- you really need both. Right. One is not enough. You basically had redacted documents that gave you some key dates, and the people kind of filled in the dots and the, the spaces there. One thing that I was – actually, I didn't know a lot about this at the time as I was in college, but one thing I thought was interesting was that maybe we should have seen this coming because we had just run several mock operations against ourselves, and the, the one eligible receiver is fascinating. Um, this was a no-warning test in the late 1990s, 97. Essentially, it six the NSA, our team from the NSA, on several different key American organizations like the Pentagon, the Navy, the Air Force. Uh, and it doesn't go all that well yeah. for the military. Yeah. Yeah, eligible receiver, um, uh, one of the first uh, red team tests, uh, sort of penetration tests, essentially. Uh, I recently, after the book was already done, found out there was uh, there was one of the earliest pen tests was already done in the 70s, wow. and it was successful. But NSA uh, breaching DIA in this case, uh, I mean in a in a in a simulation, a, a real life simulation simulation. Um, but eligible receiver, um, remarkably, usually in other histories, is 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 is, a, is seen as something that happens before Moonlight Maze, mm-hmm. but that actually has it wrong. Because Moonlight Maze starts earlier. It's like simultaneously. Exactly. We just don't realize it's happening until later on. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, it was a useful exercise because it was a wake-up call. But um, I think a lot of people at the time didn't really get the message right. They were still thinking. So literally when 9-11 happened, there were people thinking that this should have been a cyber attack. Well, I, you look at the fact that the NSA, it's not like you need the NSA for this because there are people at... U.S. Pacific Command, who used the word password as their password to their computer. I mean, this is like the old joke from Spaceballs, like your luggage is one, two, three, four, five, or whatever. I mean, that, these are things today we take for granted, but... Uh, well, you know, I, I'm not so sure, actually. I don't think we take it for granted today. Uh, when I give... Uh, this is a bit of a side note, but when I give a... When I speak with uh, technical uh, or relatively technical audiences, you know, not Google engineers, but people working in the, you know, say, in the you know, military, NATO, and I ask for a show of hands, who is using two-factor authentication? That's, that's the second step after the password, mm-hmm. like a token. You would be amazed by how many hands go up when asked, uh, how, how, how few hands go up. It's the majority of people, even in the security establishment, don't use two-factor authentication. So let's, l- l- let me move to an article you actually wrote this July, uh, and it kind of segues pretty well from the Moonlight Maze conversation because it's the Russians in the news again working uh, against the United States specifically, not just necessarily against a lot of people, uh, and talking about the DNC hacks uh, and about Russia's uh, apparent desire to influence American elections through cyber war, essentially. Yeah. 
Let me just make one observation that I think has, is not receiving nearly enough attention. A lot of people think attribution, um, you know, finding out who hacked you, is, um, is new. That is a recent thing that the U.S. government started attributing uh, intruders. That is just wrong. The only, what is new is that we know about it. But the Moonlight Maze story shows very nicely that attribution was done successfully at very high levels of, uh, of, of, uh, of certainty already in 1999. Um, and using sources that are not just technical, but also other intelligence sources. So attribution clearly has been done for a very long time, and also clearly it's possible, just well, as a side. Yeah, no, that's great. Let me, let me jump in real quick, because I, part of what the DNC hack, part of what uh, uh, the security team did is realize that uh, they were hacking, whoever was hacking the DSC was doing it during normal working business hours in Moscow time, which is almost exactly the same as one of the key clues yeah. of Moonlight Maze. Yeah, so, you know, working hours at this point in time have, have been used so many times as, a, as, a, as one indicator of many. It's ne on its own, working hours is never enough. But it's just sometimes, or in Moonlight Maze also, you had uh, quiet on Orthodox Christmas. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, if it's for the first time, that's an interesting indicator. But um, today, I think... Uh, the visibility into some of the technical um, evidence, forensic details has, has, has improved and we can assess it better. So I think in the case of the DNC breach, um, for instance, we can show from the malware samples that were found inside the DNC, the public, by the way, everybody can access them on virus total, um, that part of the command and control infrastructure that they used, hard-coded in, in the malware samples, was also used in a breach against the German parliament, the very same IP address, and it's a unique IP address. Mm -hmm. So that means the lateral attribution between the two cases is very strong. Whoever breached the DNC also breached the German parliament. And that's not spoofable? That's something that's pretty hard evidence? That is, uh, it's it, you know, thinkable that you can, not spoofable, but you could possibly construct it. Mm -hmm. But it's extremely, extremely right. unlikely, yeah. What's, I'm not going to ask you to take 10, 15 years in the future, but what, what do you see as the next step? Um, is it the, the old-fashioned idea of what we saw in Georgia in 2008 where the Russians attacked the Georgian defense grid and, and took that down? Is it no more like the OPM hack that the Chinese did to steal all these secrets? Is it a Stuxnet? Because really Stuxnet now is very really the one instance – that is what the people back in the 1940s you know, and 50s were seeing, physical destruction. There hasn't been anything since. I mean, think a year ahead, six months ahead. What, what, what kind of major attacks potentially are we seeing in the future? Well, before we think ahead, let's just think two years at least, into the, or three mm -hmm. years now into the past. And what I have in mind here are the Snowden mm -hmm. uh, leaks. The Snowden, the NSA files that were leaked into the public domain are very, very helpful uh, in some ways. I mean, they caused a lot of damage, and I very much appreciate that. But they're helpful for people like myself because we can now understand things uh, in this space cybersecurity better than we can before. So I'll give you a, a very concrete example. Mm -hmm. Just two days ago, I had a conversation with a German journalist because the German parliament had, has, a, has another hack incident that is linked again to the DNC just three days ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, well, 
can we really trust these attribution statements from, you know, from companies and from the government? And I say, well, you know, pull, literally pull up on my computer, pull up an NSA slide and said, okay, here's how it works. And there's this beautiful operation outlined in one uh, slide where the NSA attributed with very high levels of certainty a Chinese operation to 3PLA by hacking a Chinese ISP. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll spare you the details. But, you know, it's really helpful to have that in the public domain because after I showed this to him, this is a German journalist, he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll buy that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, there's, there's always the pushback that, you know, oh, this is, this is one campaign trying to blame the Russians. You know, and, and you could, Russians have been such an easy target for the last 70 years now. It almost knee-jerk, oh, if you have some problem, it's the Russians' fault. But in this case, it seems like we can actually blame the Russians. So, you know, we have to be very careful and, and, and attribute the different pieces in the puzzle very carefully. We shouldn't always be, um, because this is an intelligence assessment, it has to be done very professionally and, uh, and thoroughly, because, we, you know, obviously we, we know the examples of intelligence assessments gone wrong, and that has significant costs. And credibility matters. Yeah. Right. But I'm just amazed, because in some cases, the evidence that we have is already very strong. I mean, no public statement from the U.S. government, but if you actually understand the technical forensic evidence, it is impressive. Yet, literally today, we're taping this, I think, on the 23rd. Third, yeah. um, I, there's a New York Times article that outlines uh, uh, DSC leaks, uh, uh, another leak implying uh, making Michelle Obama's passport number and I think even the passport picture public. And there's no link to Russia, although the evidence here is actually quite solid. Well, I mean, you, you look at that and you have to question, is it the Russian government? Is it people in Russia? The Russians certainly push off the organized crime. But you certainly have people like Dianne Feinstein, who is the uh, Democratic uh, ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and Adam Schiff, who's a ranking member of the House and Senate Committee, both coming out and saying it's pretty clear that Russia is behind these hacks. So there, at least there are members of the U.S. government, whether they're, they're not part of the administration, but they're members of Congress and the intelligence committees coming out and saying it's the Russians. Yes, and you know, in a way we have to, we have to say that this is a quite innovative and in some ways brilliant operation on their part. It's very cost-effective. It's not very hard to pull off. It works really well. And they're probably, I imagine, they're, they're sitting there First, being obviously very angry at being caught, and we saw that in their first post. Uh, mm -hmm. It was very full of swear words and exclamation marks. But then after a few weeks, they discover, okay, they've been caught by a company and by anonymous intelligence officials, and they continue leaking, and it works. That, I mean, the most amazing situation for me was a couple of Saturdays ago, the DC Leaks Twitter account was suspended. So, you know, DC Leaks has a Twitter account that they use. It was suspended probably because people complained about it. And then what happened next was just mind-boggling. You had significant parts of the, of the sort of fringy right. Uh, I remember, you know, the Daily Caller making, doing a news story and um, Lou Dobbs tweeting on it, calling out Twitter for censoring, uh, you know, these hackers that provide information, leaked information on the Clinton campaign. So, you know, let me just spell this out. We had 
Lou Dobbs and others helping the Russian, a Russian intelligence agency to get their Twitter account reinstated to continue a campaign that is already working well, adding to their public visibility in the process. Now, when, when the, the Moonlight Maze uh, cyber attack happened and then later on things like, things like OPM, there were people calling like act of war and then people saying, calm down, this is traditional intelligence work, right? You're stealing secrets, you're stealing information. This seems to not fall within that. This seems like a little more hands-on. It's not just, I remember when the DNC hack information first came out, it sounded as though all that was taken was opposition research about Donald Trump. So everyone kind of chuckled about that, like, well, they'll be reading that for a while. And then it turns out that there's a lot more to it than that. Has this kind of stepped over the lines of fair play, going from traditional espionage and intelligence collection to something very different? You know, th that, is, that is exactly the question that is right now on the desk of, you know, the White, some people in the White House and the Department of Justice and the Defense Department and, you know, possibly others. We have to make that decision now. It's a, it's a, it's a political decision to make. Do, are we willing to accept this? Is, is, are the United States willing to accept this new reality um, of a foreign power, uh, possibly using some proxy actors in the process, um, meddling in American elections? And let's just, again, let me just be a little more concrete here because it's so chilling. Donald Trump has said several times that he thinks the election could be rigged. Now, he's probably implying at least, yeah, he's implying by saying that he may not concede late at night on the 8th of November, like Mitt Romney did, like John McCain did. So if you see that statement and that implication from, from the point of view of the people run, running the influence campaign, probably from Moscow, you're thinking, well, this is quite a nice opportunity to inject a bit of doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, you just need to claim that Pennsylvania was rigged, for instance. Uh, I think it's was it 40-something precincts in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania do not have a paper record. Uh, so you don't even have to do anything. You just need to claim it, credibly, of course. Right. Well, I mean, one way to do that, and I think one of the big fears of a next wave of leaks would be leaking 99% accurate emails from the DNC and then interjecting that 1% fake or altered emails to... to infer that there is some shenanigans going on, which would be all that was necessary to kind of make this happen. Yeah. I mean, possibly, but, but I would just add here, you know, obviously I, I speak with a European accent, a mix of a German and a, and a British accent, I suspect. But looking at this situation from, from a European perspective is quite chilling because if they can get away with this in the United States, what's going to stop them in, in Germany, in Poland, in Estonia? You know, you name it. Uh, obviously, nothing. Um, but uh, you know, just an additional small observation here. Probably, even in China, people are looking at this and thinking, "I'm not sure we want to establish this as a as a new sort of you know possible uh, tactic to be used elsewhere." Because this is really quite a rogue tactic, and um, I don't know what the Russians are thinking, but they also have something to lose. I mean, this could backfire. Well, it's a little bit of an awaken a sleeping giant because the NSA is the best in the world at doing this kind of stuff. And if they make it legitimate, I mean, there's uh, – I'd like to think that we have better scruples in this. But I know the CIA and the American intelligence has interfered in elections before. We don't do it all that often anymore, but it's not like it's without precedent here. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd like to think and hope that the, the tit for tat is not an option because, you know, for obvious reasons, I think responding to this situation by um, there has to, I think, there has to be a public response because a key target audience of any response is the American public and American opinion leaders, and you know that Lou Dobbs tweet that I mentioned. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't have done that had he actually known what he's doing. I think. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the key, and the last thing I'll say is that it's unlikely that very many of the people who are at the height, like people like Donald Trump and others, are aware this is happening, are, are complicit in it. As, as much, and the listeners know I'm left of center, but as left of center as I am, I don't think Donald Trump is in bed with Putin. I think yeah. he's, he's just uh, an unwitting participant in what's happening around him. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, absolutely, yeah, yeah. We'd like to thank our great sponsor, Mac Weldon, for continuing to support SpyCast. Remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. That's 20% off at MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code SPYCAST. Well, Thomas Ridd is a fantastic author. The Rise of the Machines is a book that if you have any intention of understanding the world of cyber today, you need to know this backstory. You need to know this history just came out. It's a, it's a great book. Uh, I read it very quickly because I just, I just kept wanting to know what was coming next. So I, I certainly congratulate you on that. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast, and we wish you all the best of luck moving forward. you have to come back with your next book. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL Spycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.